Hello and welcome to Conversations and Cultural Heritage. This five-episode series from Murbrook School's Mellon Fellowship for Diversity, Inclusion, and Cultural Heritage highlights the background and work of people of color in cultural heritage organizations. We'll talk about different career paths and roles in cultural heritage institutions, sharing a wide range of experiences from people in the field. Visit our website at bit.ly slash chconvos for links and more information. Hi, this is Jasmine Sykes-Kunk, Head of Research Services for the John Hay Library at Brown University. And I'm Ursula Romero, Outreach Librarian at the Lilly Library at Indiana University. And today we are going to have a conversation about what a day in the life in our roles are um, so that we can get to know each other and share more about our work with you. So Ursula, tell me, what excites you about your work? That's such a hard question because I just love it. (laughs) Um, I think one of my favorite things is just working with people and kind of connecting people to our collections. Um, Because I'm outreach librarian, I I do a lot of work with the public. Um, So that's, you know, undergrads, um, grad students, scholars, researchers, just general people in town. Uh, And it's always really fun kind of See, I guess the thing that makes me most excited is, is when other people get really excited. <laughs> I totally understand yeah. <laughs> that for sure. Um, when I tell people um, what excites me about the work that I do, um, because it's in usually a small, you know, special collections reading room. There's not a lot of outward facing um, work in the reading room sometimes, um, but for me, the one of the most exciting things is watching the click. So if a person is sitting there and they're looking at some material and they encounter something that they didn't expect to see or something that was the thing that they had been looking for all along or um, just seeing how something that they saw connects to a larger project, like that, that aha moment, it's really exciting for me to, to watch and see that happen. Um, similar to your job and to your role, um, I, I always tell people that I connect the people to the things, both intellectually and physically. Um, and sometimes the building that I'm in is this big marble building and it faces the main campus, but we're open to the public. So like physically and structurally, you would not know, even though we put a big sign outside that says this is your library, it's an intimidating space. And even people in the Brown University community didn't for many years feel that they were welcome in that space, that it was only for you know serious scholars of rare and fine materials. Um, so, I feel like sometimes I'm outside with a megaphone, like, no, 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 you can come too. You really can. Um, Wow. You're, yeah, you're basically like, I could have said all of those things you just said. (laughs) It's, it's the exact same here. Um, And I, you know, I work with, um, we do work with, with scholars and researchers quite frequently, but what I the kind of populations I work with the most and who I like to work with the most, honestly, are people who aren't actually doing, quote, like serious research and who don't think that they are welcome in a place like the Lily because we're similar. We're a big limestone building and it looks very stately and it's impossible to just get people through the door to come in and, you know, see that it's a place that they're welcome to be. So. I guess going back to the the original question, like one of the most exciting things for me is when I have undergrads come in and they say, oh my God, I've never been here before. Um, I had no idea. I didn't know that I was even allowed that, you know, this, this stuff doesn't, I sh- like, I can't believe I'm being allowed to touch this right now. And um, it, just like getting really excited about it. And then like also very frequently having students come in and say like, I didn't know you had material that related to me. I didn't know you had things that kind of told stories about people like me. I, you know, I think a lot of people come in and they expect us to only have like Shakespeare and, and like George Washington and things. And they, you know, we've had students come in and say, like, I I was not expecting to see this and I wasn't expecting to see myself here, like in these collections. 
Um, and that's always really exciting for me when, when, when stu- students especially, but anyone in the community can come in and kind of understand that not only are they welcome there and we want them there, but like there's something there for them. Um, yeah, so that's, that's definitely, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's so hard to just get them in the building. <laughs> It is. Um, but then sometimes because we just conveniently happen to be at a near uh, stopping point on the Brown University like tours for pr- prospective students, um, we are close to the exit point of the Brown University um, admissions tours. So a lot of people stop in because we are one of the few buildings that you can walk in and not need to swipe. Mm. So we are the closest facilities for a restroom or a water fountain. Mm. And so um, it's interesting when I'm at the front desk, when people walk up and they qualify their their approach. And I get excited and I love being able to say, you don't have to have a why. We are mm-hmm. open to the public. We are here for you. You know, mm-hmm. on the wall, when you come in, it says you belong here. And, and I, I try that. to, you know, I try really hard to let people know that we say what we mean. So um, a lot of times people might say, oh, you know, I was an alum or I know someone who went here. Is it okay if we walk mm-hmm. in? And I'm like, please come in. Um, spend some time, check out the, the gallery that we have and these exhibits. You can't necessarily see materials right away um, because you need to make an appointment to come to actually be in the reading room. But we do keep examples of collection materials and facsimiles at the front desk. So when people come, we can say, you can come back and make an appointment to see the real thing. But if you're not able to take a look at this facsimile of the 1984, because we have that manuscript and it's usually asked for a lot, or we just recently redid all of the artwork in the hallways and it is all facsimiles that were nominated by staff of materials that are in our collections under the seven major collection kind of themes. So we can say you can take a walk through the building and you have an idea and maybe next time you can actually come in and make an appointment. So that's kind of how we try to still say yes without while we have to unfortunately sometimes say no. What a, that is such a great idea. <laughs> I, 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 I haven't heard of someone having um, facsimiles up at the desk before, but that's brilliant. Yeah, we had, so um, HP Lovecraft is from Providence and HP Lovecraft is extremely problematic. Um, and his writings, as much as being, you know, the grandfather of weird fiction, is very anti-Semitic and xenophobic and racist. And so there's a conference here um, called Necronomicon and it happens every other year. And Providence is such a mainstay. And this building also is very close to where um, his home was. There's actually a plaque right out front Mm. of the library that says H.P. Lovecraft's home was here um, or near here and that he also frequented the library and the papers are here. So people flock to the Hay when they come to visit Rhode Island to participate and um, see, move through Lovecraft's world and life. So um, out of demand, actually, um, the papers are very fragile and um, they decided to make some facsimiles of them. For me, it became really frustrating um, when people would come to the desk for the only example to be these Lovecraft papers. And for Mm. a really long time, it was just the Lovecraft facsimiles. And, you know, as a Black woman, already when you're at the front desk, people don't anticipate me. If they Mm -hmm. do have any preconceived notions of what an archive is, they don't really, they most often are usually not younger Black women, more, Mm. I think... I don't know what it is, but it's not me. So often people often think I'm a student. So, <laughs> and so I get questions all the time. So, um, but I know we have really cool things that reflect me and other people's culture and contemporary materials that we are actively collecting, and that just falls short of the breadth and the scope of the collection. So, 
Um, I know that a lot of my colleagues had in the past tried to create more facsimiles, but because of capacity and bandwidth, there, it never happened. So I kind of picked up that mantle and with the undergraduate student assistants, because they page a lot of the materials and they retrieve them and put them away after we use them in the classes or in the reading room. I said, well, what do you see in our collections that you want people to know about? What would you tell people to come and see? Um, and so they nominated them. And so we are in the process of getting more done. And my goal is every academic year, if I take a couple of examples from each um, cohort of students, we will have like a big, robust variety. So if people say that they, oh, they're interested in plants, I can bring out a whole box of just plant-related um facsimiles from our collection materials. So it's definitely a work in progress in its early phases. We had an opportunity to replace all of the artwork because um, there were all these major renovations. And so that was another project that kind of echoed the same sentiment. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's something that um, I've been working on for a while. So. That, is, that is so incredibly cool. I don't know that that's something we would be able to steal but um, <laughs> because I don't know that we also have any like bandwidth or capacity, but that's that is just such a brilliant way to like get people engaged with the collections. Would would you be able to just kind of talk about what your what you do in your role? Because I every library seems like runs completely differently, and everyone has kind of different job like areas that. Some places are very, you know, everyone has a very specific role that they do. In some places, everyone kind of does a little bit of everything. Sure, yeah. So, um, and my role was kind of reconfigured right before I started. Um, the reader services department was primarily focused on the logistics of um, supporting the reading room and classroom. So overseeing where the collections were, um, making sure they were easily accessible and finding them for the people who need them. Um, whereas now um, in my role as the head of research services, we also are the general um, entry point for anyone's um, first reference questions. So um, my team and I, we monitor all of the like general inbox and the front desk and um, any questions that come in about how to make an appointment and what materials we have. Um, we start out by answering, um, showing people how to access and find the materials in our catalog and the finding aid. And then um, if it gets really complicated, we use a system so that we can collaborate with the curators and they can give us information um, or we can transfer the, the um, reference inquiry to them. So we kind of oversee the intellectual reference and then we manage the physical movement of the materials. Um, we have about 100 classes per academic mm. year. Um, the semester I started, we had a hundred classes that semester, which was was pretty intense. But you know, it brought in a whole lot of new people into the library. Um, some of those classes are just one-time visits, and sometimes they're semester-long classes where they're working with the materials. Um, so we make sure that the materials are in place um, and ready for that class. Um, we support exhibitions. In my role, I kind of also am a liaison for the operations for the library. So because of the reading room and the entry point, I'm usually, if there are any kind of construction projects or holidays, anything that would um, impact the, the reading room or visitors' access to the building. Um, in addition to the special collections reading room, we also have a general student um, quiet study space that um, was renovated and created in 2014. Mm. So um, making sure, and that stays open until midnight. So making sure that, that we don't stay, the offices close at five, and then the students can swipe into the building. Um, so making sure that all of the supplies are needed. I, I serve on the acquisitions team. So for any um, larger purchases, um, I get to, you know, help um, guide and nominate things. And I work with the like collections care. Um, we, we do a lot of collaboration with the other units just to make sure that um, items are being discovered um, easily. So if we notice something needs additional um, preservation treatment, or we're trying to do a search for someone and the catalog subject headings aren't working the way that we feel, we can coordinate with um, the catalogers to help make it more discoverable. So we do a lot yeah. of things. Um, <laughs> 
um, because it's the people. So wherever people find themselves is where I, I tend to find myself. Um, mm. What about you? What does your role as an outreach librarian look like? So my my role as outreach librarian is actually very new. Um, I'm the Lily's first outreach librarian. Congratulations. So that's very exciting. Uh, and so it's, it's still a little bit nebulous because I've been kind of creating it as I go. I've only been in this in an official capacity as outreach librarian for about a year, a bit more than a year. Um, but it really is just, uh, like you were saying, a lot of just working with people. Um, we are, my department used to be called public services and we've recently changed the name to teaching and research uh, to kind of reflect like what we do the most of. <laughs> um, and so like what you were saying, we teach a lot of classes probably not a hundred a year. That is astounding. <laughs> um, but we teach a lot of classes each semester. Um, and I do a lot of the teaching for that. I'm probably, so we have the head of teaching and research was formerly the education librarian and she does the bulk of the, um, of the teaching. But then the second most teaching falls to me. Uh, and then we kind of spread it out among the rest of the department. Um, so I help with scheduling classes and kind of assigning them to the librarian who has the most expertise in that particular area. Uh, and then I teach uh, about, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20-ish classes of just kind of one-off, uh, you know, just of all different topics. So people will come in with saying, you know, I want a class, I'm teaching a class on six, 17th century poetry. So we're doing a class on 17th century poetry. And then someone else will say, uh, we're doing um, golden age of science fiction. And someone else will be teaching math and they want math books. Or uh, we have a class um, about uh, depictions of cannibals in early modern maps and, uh, you know, or, or film history or just any kind of topic under the sun, essentially. So I teach a lot of those classes. Uh, and then my kind of main thing as outreach, which is the thing that I do uh, more than, you know, other people in my department do, because we do share a lot of our duties because we're a relatively small staff. So we all do a little bit of everything. But I primarily handle event planning, getting in touch with, uh, with speakers, um, sometimes finding speakers for events, hosting events, being the person to kind of do intros for things or um, kind of like come up with ideas for workshops or uh, or talks or kind of public events or um, or just any any kind of public facing thing like that. So we have a kind of mixture of scholarly talks uh, and then kind of I've been trying to have more family friendly kind of family oriented events so we'll have exhibition openings where we have you know scrapbook making and uh you know crafts and things like that and i also work a lot on our social media uh, and our instagram and facebook uh, i also sit at the front desk for a bit every week and we actually have it so that every single full-time person up to the director has desk time so that everyone has a chance to see, you know, who's coming into the library and interact with people. Yeah, so it, it really is, like you said, it's just wherever people are <laughs> and and whatever they need, um, I kind of help with that. I do, I do answer reference questions much less so than, I do mostly teaching and a little reference, whereas my colleagues might do mostly reference and a little teaching, but we all kind of do everything. That's cool. And I like that um, you have a variety of types of work that you do. I think I'm similar to your um, colleagues where I do more reference with an occasional teaching. In the little teaching that I have done, it takes a lot of time and effort to make those custom classes mm -hmm. and a deep understanding of the collections and the depth of the collections in order to be able to even um, pull materials or suggest materials to view in the class. So mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that um, 
we took a moment to celebrate because that is not an easy thing to do. And I know how hard it was new. I'm new here. I've been here for a little, about a year and a half now. Um, and how overwhelming with the 3 million objects in the collection that span so many topics and, and times, um, pulling things, you know, was difficult or even, coming to feel confident that I can steward these collections mm -hmm. um, appropriately. And I um, kind of fall back on, I am supporting the person and the person is the expert in their research. I, I am not the expert at all. You know, I can listen closely and, and I can search well and use those skills to try to match our items. But the patron themselves or the teacher has to be the one who kind of guides that work. Mm -hmm. um, so I know with a volume of classes that you shared and the variety of classes that you're, you're teaching, that that is exhaustive and um, it's, it's some intense work. So, and I wanted to make sure that we celebrated that because that is not easy work. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it definitely, the learning curve has been high. <laughs> uh, I've been at the Lily for about four years now, uh, and I only just feel like I'm starting to get a handle on the collection. And there are w one thing that we, that was kind of a, a mixed blessing was we also underwent a major renovation recently. <laughs> and while we were doing that, we had um, a very small teaching collection that we brought with us to our new location that were all books that we pulled from the stacks and kind of thought like, well, when we do classes, which we ended up not even doing because COVID happened, um, you know, these, these will be ones that we can use and still have classes, even though the rest of our books are, are in kind of offsite storage. Uh, and even though we didn't get to do that many in-person classes, we, we were able to do a fair amount of virtual classes. Um, and it was really interesting kind of having to use that teaching collection um, and getting to know some of the books that hadn't been used as much because when you're planning classes is so labor intensive that it's easy to kind of fall back on the same materials for for similar classes kind of over and over again uh, and a lot of those times those materials are sort of the the most might be some of the more famous ones or you know the the more um kind of spectacular or or just kind of like expensive or pretty or you know just the the kind of like big name things and I didn't have access to those because those were being a, a lot of the ones that that we had to use for that we used for a lot of classes were not accessible at all so I we kind of had to like really go through the collection and be like okay what do we actually have that we can use and it and it made it it kind of deepened my knowledge of the collections because I, I couldn't actually rely on the, the past lists because I just didn't have that stuff. So, you know, it's, it, it is a, a lot of work and especially if you want to keep things fresh and keep things, um, you know, like diversify a lot of these lists that have been, you know, someone made this class list in 2009 and hasn't updated it since. And we've gotten so much more stuff since then and so many more different histories and perspectives and stories that that you kind of need to start bringing in and yeah it's it, it really is it's a lot of work but we we try to um we, we we try really hard to to kind of have our classes be diverse isn't the correct word but like telling more stories than the original dead white guy canon stuff that that formed the basis of our uh of our the initial lily collection uh and we like i was saying earlier i really want all the students to come into class and kind of see something of themselves in the class regardless of what the topic is and it it does take a fair bit of digging to to find things sometimes um we we start every class session, regardless of what the topic is, with a brief discussion about um, neutrality in libraries and how libraries and archives are not neutral and kind of explaining to the students all of the human um, choices and steps and biases that go into not just collecting these items, but uh, cataloging them, make, creating finding aids, you know, the, the, the way the things we collect are based in human biases, but also the way that they're able to find these things is based in human biases uh, and kind of just 
trying to really drive home the fact that it's just human choices the, all the way down and and nothing will ever be neutral uh, in in libraries, regardless of what people might say. So yeah, so we we even when we have kind of a gap in the collection, and I'm like, I'm so sorry, you know, we don't really have anything related to the topic you're interested in. A lot of times that can also kind of be a a moment of just like, but why? And you know, maybe we should. Why would we not have that? Why is that something that collectors in the mid 20th century might not have thought was important enough to bother purchasing? Um, so yeah, there's there's definitely a lot more that goes into the one-off classes than kind of just pulling uh, material that kind of like fits in with the syllabus. We, we really try to teach a lot about history, history of the book and about kind of, um, you know, different biases in in libraries and archives and hopefully students will go to other libraries and archives with a you know being able to keep that kind of thing in mind that's really great and um i i really appreciate and think that's a, such a cool way to ground every class by starting at that point so that way um, it really brings forward some of that invisible labor and a lot of the things that i know a lot of our other colleagues whether they're in reparative descriptive work as archivists or um, metadata reform and um and processing, um, making that work visible and mm-hmm. showing that, you know, this is definitely an ongoing and it's a forward front of mind topic and it's not as invisible as that work sometimes is. So, yeah, exactly. And, uh, I, you know, whenever I talk about it too, I always use examples from the Lily's collections because the Lily has been operating since 1960 and people cataloged and described things very differently in the 60s than and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s mm-hmm. uh, than they do now. And there have been many times where we'll find a finding aid or a catalog entry for a book and we'll say like, oh, wow, that is absolutely not how that should be described. That's awful. Someone please fix that. And then we try to fix it. Um, but I think it's it's really necessary to bring in examples from us of of where we have we have needed to improve and where we have kind of had to fix what was done in our own library in the past because I don't want students to come in kind of taking everything we say as total gospel truth and to understand that like because there are people behind this like we're totally fallible And, and if they, and if, if, and I also encourage them to like, whenever you visit a library or archive or museum or anything like that, like take things with a grain of salt and question things. And like, even if it's us, you know, even if it's, it's something that you see at the Lily or one of our books or one of our catalog entries or one of our finding aids, and you see something where you're like, I don't think that's right. Like just, you just have to just tell us, you know, where, and don't be, don't be scared too. Oh, a hundred percent. Um, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you um, get to where you are today? I know you're in this position um, for just a, it's a new position relatively, mm-hmm. um, but I know you've been there longer. Um, how did you find yourself where you are? It's It was a whole long meandering story, <laughs> but um, I basically started going to school for uh, literature and I went to community college for an extremely long time, like way longer than you're supposed to, and kind of didn't know what I was doing and was not good at school and was just having a terrible time. Um, And eventually I switched majors to media studies um, and and transferred to a four-year school. And I got um, internships at, I got an internship at the Paley Center for Media in New York um, doing a kind of cataloging their film reels. And I thought, this is really fun. How do I do this forever? Oh, I have to go to library school. (laughs) So I went to library school and um, got my degree and kind of just through a series of fortunate internships and, um, you know, work study things, just got more experience in special collections, kind of almost by accident. And, you know, because my my goal in library school wasn't I want to get into rare books. It was I want 
a job. Whenever mm-hmm. someone asked me what kind of librarian I wanted to be, I would just say like, I want health insurance. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I ended up moving out to Indiana because my now husband had to come out here for grad school. So I came with him and I applied to every single library job that I could. And I ended up getting one at the Lilly Library as a visiting librarian. Uh, and I was in a visiting position for two years, which is very scary because it's very precarious. Uh, and then my supervisor at the time and the library director and uh, just a lot of other people at the Lilly did a, were really supportive and really fought for my position to become permanent. Um, and I just always liked doing the outreach thing. I immediately took over the Instagram when I started there. I loved doing all the events. I loved doing all that kind of planning. And so it kind of just made sense. And there, there at the time, we had had an education and outreach librarian, and it just was too much for one person. So they ended up kind of just splitting that job into two. Um, and I became outreach librarian. And it is awesome. And I now I'm like, I don't know what else I would have done with my life, but it, it really was a total, if I had, it was a complete accident. And, and I, I like also emphasizing that I, you know, I did start out at a, at a community college. Um, and I was in, you know, at, in a community college when I was, you know, 25, I was like, it was, it was a really, it was hard for me to get through. Um, undergrad for a while and it's this is the kind of job that I didn't think I was I would ever be qualified for or um, or good enough for so I kind of I kind of like you know emphasizing that I was I was not a super good student and I didn't go to a super fancy school or anything but it it you know it, it ended up working out and I I you know kind of want people to know that they don't have to be going to like Ivy League schools to to work in this field. Awesome. Um, that's a, a journey. And yeah. so, but I also want to make sure that there's no right amount of time to be in any kind of school. And mm-hmm. I want to make sure that um, that was your path and it's 100% um, led you to where you're supposed to be. So, um, and I think it's also important for people coming from all different backgrounds to hear. Um, I also have a a meandering and (laughs) long path um, to to where I am today. And I feel like um, once I figured out that this was the work I wanted to do, it kind of went into hyperdrive, but it also has been um, relatively short of a time that I've been, um, with air quotes, a library professional, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Um, My first regular library job at all ever was in 2015, but I have Mm -hmm. to back up a lot further because I went to um, a very competitive, I went to an Ivy League school straight from college and it was a very like intense school. And I loved learning and I loved being there and I loved the friends that I had, but there were a lot of other things that were happening in my life such that um, required me to leave um, just before I finished. So my Mm. senior spring semester, um, I left school. And then for a solid decade um, and more, probably about a decade, I um, had convinced myself that Um, the door to education and to a career for me had been permanently shut. That was just something that I had mourned the loss of because I have always been a curious person who enjoyed learning everything just voraciously. I just love new things. I have like 3 million hobbies and knitting, you know, you name it. Um, I find joy and and beauty in, in learning new things, right? And staying open to learning. And a lot of my friends that I met um, in that in undergrad have remained and remained my friends even when I left school. And um, one of my friends had in the PhD track and had mentioned to me, you know, Jasmine, you should consider librarianship because you always like to connect people and you love doing research. You know, that's a thing, right? You know, that's like a whole career you can do. And I was like, yeah, really though? Is it really? Um, 
my mom, I just grew up with, I guess, lay librarians, if you will, just like community advocates. Mm -hmm. Um, If someone didn't know how to go get a social security card, my mother would go with them. If somebody needed to get a passport or, you know, I grew up in New York City. So, you know, getting a good job with the city, getting a good transit job, getting a postal job, when those those, um, postings came out, my mom would be like, here's the information for it. Um, mm-hmm. Here is uh, the, this is how you f- go sign up for this, you know, lottery for apartments um, um, always. And so when I became a mom and I would do all of this research and she was like, you know, that's what you're doing. Like you're, you're gathering resources and you're sharing them with people. That's, that's what a librarian does. <laughs> I left school in the spring of 2000 and um, we had that conversation, I want to say, in 2010. Um, and so in February of 2012, I finally got the courage to email um, an admissions person back at my original school to see about how I could get back in. I did not want to, I had looked at transferring credits, but I would have to start back as a sophomore. And I was like, that's not it. I already have two small children and <laughs> this is going to be a mission in and of itself. Um what, what can I do? So, um, they, they accepted me back in, um, and not in like a, um, as like a a regular undergrad. And so, but I didn't even live in the state anymore. Um, so I had to temporarily relocate for the summer with my two small kids We stayed (sighs) with my sister and she watched them while I was at school for 12 hours a day, taking two summer classes. Um, and then I, I did one, two summer classes there, and then I did a remote one. And then I took, um, then I was able to transfer the remaining credits back. But in between that, my family relocated to California, and I didn't know how to drive. So I had to go get a license so that I could go drive to a college so that I could transfer the credit back to my main school. I started back, I want to say, maybe 2013, and I graduated with my bachelor's in December of 2016. So 16 years, 16 and a half years from the time uh, that I started. That was just a long, long journey to then have to go to library school. Yeah. Right after. Wow. Um, yeah. So I walked in May of 2017. I started library school in the fall of 2017 and graduated in December of 2019. From It took me about 10 years almost from the time that I decided that I wanted to become a librarian um, to the time that I actually finished the two degrees to be able to do that work. Um, While in California, I got my first library job in 2015 um, at a public library. And um, when I was working part-time at another school, place, someone told me about the scholarships that were available. Um, So the Spectrum Scholarship and the um, Mosaic Scholarship. um, And it was then through those programs that I really got into special collections and and archives and unique things, primarily archives. I still didn't see where in the rare book world Mm -hmm. um, were there any reflections of me or my history. Um, But my old boss at NYU who was a librarian of the book before she became the director of the special collections was like, no, 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 no. There's so much um, cultural heritage materials in rare books. And there are all these amazing people doing interesting black print culture work like Liz McHenry and Mm -hmm. Derek Spires. And so that made me curious about the books, which brought me to the rare book school fellowship. So that's, that's really incredible, though. I'm so happy that you went back. And I, I think that, I don't know, hearing people's educational paths, especially when they're unconventional, I think is really important because there are definitely a lot of people out there who are, who, first of all, maybe don't even know that this career exists. And if they do, might not think that it's something that they can do because for whatever reason, you know, they they're taking too too long in school or they're you know they don't quite know what their path you know just for any number of reasons they didn't finish their undergrad in four years and then immediately go to grad school like you're everyone might think you're quote supposed to uh and there's just so many people out there uh who who kind of have like alternative paths for their education and that's totally okay and doesn't you know disqualify you from working in special collections at all and I think that there are way more people in special collections who have 
paths like that that are kind of meandering probably way more than you would think. Yes. So I also, I agree, but I also wanted to make sure that for both you and for me, that we don't diminish our journeys, right? So however long it took you in, in community college and however long it took me to get my bachelor's degree, they're both valid and okay mm-hmm. because they work for us. And had exactly. we not been on the paths that we did, we may not be having this conversation together. So I want to make sure that... Um, for, for both you and for me, because I think mm-hmm. sometimes um, it's not as always feels welcoming to share the story if it doesn't seem the same as everyone else's. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like it is all the more reason why it needs to be heard and probably more the one of the reasons why we are both committed to making sure that other people feel they belong. Because at some point in, in our stories, we felt that we were in places that weren't meant for us to mm-hmm. be in. I still feel this yes. whole industry is a place that, you know, at the onset didn't really have us in mind um, in these roles. Um, and so while we're here, we might as well, you know, do what we can to, to hold those doors open for everybody else. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's a perfect way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> So what does, um, since we're in this like cultural okay. heritage mind space, um, what does cultural heritage mean to you and to your work? I guess it, it really is like, like we've been saying, kind of helping people see themselves in, helping them see themselves in our collections and, and see their stories in history um, and kind of know that their, their history is not only there, um, because I think for a lot of people, there are times when they might think that there just is no real record of, of people like them. Um, but not only that it's there, but that it's important. And um, I think having, you know, a library like the Lily rare, fancy rare book library that people are kind of intimidated to go into. But then when you go into it and you see yourself or your family represented in in these collections that are being handled with such care and are being put on on exhibition and being talked about you know as if they are extremely valuable and important uh i think that says something and it kind of creates that sense of value and it it it's meaningful i think when a, a library like ours you know collects certain materials and says like not only do we do we think people will think this is interesting but we think that people will think it's interesting and necessary and important for decades and decades and decades to come um and we think that it is just as valuable as having the gutenberg bible or we think you know we think it's just as important for you to see as the first folio um and you know it and it belongs in in the same space as kind of the the accepted canonical texts uh, and it is exactly as, and everyone's heritage is exactly as important as those kind of canonical texts. We were also saying earlier, um, a big part of of what I want to do um, is is let people know that all of these things are their history and their cultural heritage, um, including the first folio, um, but also including, you know, 1960s ephemera or photo albums or things that they, romance novels, or um, just any of our huge collection and that it's, it, it is theirs. We're kind of stewarding it um, and we're trying to keep it safe and preserve it for hopefully a very, very, very long time. But ultimately it's not ours and it's, it's everyone's, it's the communities and to kind of, so I guess cultural heritage in that way is, is really just trying to get the community to kind of accept and internalize that everything in our library is theirs and not just in the way that it talks about their history, but in the way that it can come in at any time and look at anything and connect with any of it, even if they just want to touch something because they think it looks interesting or they, because it has some personal meaning to them. Yeah. So kind of just that feeling of, of this being everyone's is I think the, the most important cultural heritage to me, especially because so many, you know, there's, there's so much intersectionality in the collections as well. And so much of it's, 
speaks to all different types of people in different ways for different reasons and different items will resonate with with different groups for for various reasons and it's yeah the the just everything in the library is everybody's and <laughs> awesome no definitely um i feel that that those themes of you know making people feel valued that they're seen mm-hmm. that that their history and their heritage mm-hmm. is worthy of the preservation and protection that these um, esteemed institutions like the Lily and the Hay um, connote. Um, we have this, we, the John Hay Library has a collection, the Kate Bornstein collection, the Kate Bornstein papers. And Kate Bornstein is a trans activist artist. And one of the requirements for doing research in that collection is that you do it in person here. Um, one of the things that was important to to Kate in this collection is that um, people come to the reading room for that because making an appointment to come in to see materials connected to a trans activist and artist is worthy of a reading room in this building, um, not just to be sent remotely, but the actual experience of conducting research and how that also ascribes value and um, legitimacy to stories and people who for many years have been rendered invisible. I, I think that's an example of the donor trying to have agency in their cultural um, heritage. So looking to the future, Ursula, what impact do you hope your work will have? That's such a broad question. Um, and I guess it really, there are lots of different answers. Um, I I want people to come in and obviously I, I love when people come in and uh, see something in the collections and say, oh, I, this is amazing. I'm writing a paper about it right now. Or I changed my dissertation topic or like, uh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I need for my book or something like that. Like that's extremely satisfying. And every, every librarian I'm sure loves that. But I also just want people to, I don't, I don't necessarily think that my work needs to have big scholarly impacts. And I don't want to kind of make, I don't want to trick myself into thinking that kind of this scholarly talks or books or anything you know things of that nature are the only positive outcome or even having someone say oh my gosh I'm becoming a teacher now or I'm I'm a librarian now I'm, I'm going to library school because of this class which oh you know again is great and extremely flattering um I really just want people to be able to to visit us with confidence that they should be there and to be able to look at our collections and see the relevance to their own lives and to the current world. Um, And I want people to be able to kind of think critically a bit about primary sources and maybe learn a little bit on how to um, how to use them and not even necessarily for research, but just to understand our world better. Um, my, my priorities really are less about people learning for research purposes and scholarly purposes, although that is a huge part of what we do. It really like my, my main goal is to get people in the door that otherwise would not have come in the door and to get them to look at some of our items and say, wow, I had no idea. Um, and maybe they'll take more of an interest. Maybe they'll go to a different museum. Maybe they'll want to read more about whatever it is they looked at. Maybe they'll just kind of take that one experience away as a extremely, as a positive experience in their lives and not do anything specific with it, but just kind of have it with them and be able to remember it. Uh, and I, I think that kind of those small things might seem less glamorous than someone writing a whole book based on, you know, something that I showed them. But it's, you know, for a lot of people, especially younger people, undergrads and um, K through 12 people that come in, like there, there are some people that, you know, this is going to be formative for them. And this is going to be something that will make them realize things that they didn't know before or see themselves differently or, or see their history differently. 
uh, and it, that's that's really all I want <laughs> is just for people to come look at things and be moved by them and and literally any capacity if it's beauty or love or disgust or confusion just be able to look at history and and these collections and kind of be like feel something wow <laughs> that's that's really that's really all I want it's <laughs> Yeah. But what about you? What about you? What are your? I know it's such a hard question, but yeah, what are your? What do you want people to take away? I think the impact that I hope to have in my work here at the Hay is to to shift people's comfort when they come in. Mm-hmm. I want when they walk into the lobby that they have agency and ownership and pride, because this is a place where they know it's meant for them to use. Um, whether it's their preferred study place at night or they want to read the first folio or see some other objects, um, maybe some of the zines or comics in the collection, whatever it is, um, that they just come in confident knowing that they belong here no matter who they are, whether it's a person who's on staff or a scholar or a community activist coming because they're curious and they heard that we Mm -hmm. have some things that they just come in and no matter who they are or how they come in, they feel welcome and warm and that that would shift the energy, you know, I feel like. And it's really, um, really hard to measure (laughs) and to quantify that invisible task. And maybe it's also an iterative and ongoing process. So my my future longest impact is that my hope is that through that work, that the culture shifts. So that is the missive and goal um, all the time, whether or not I'm in this role, but people just feel like they belong here. Yes, I Absolutely. Um, I also want to add that while my main goal is trying to make people, like you said, feel comfortable who might otherwise not think they belong in a space like our libraries, um, but I also a little bit want to make some people uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) who might feel entitled to those spaces. No, absolutely. So that's kind of a two-prong thing. <laughs> and I honestly, unfortunately, I think the the one kind of goes with the other. And and the more kind of open you make a space, uh, the more uncomfortable it makes the people who felt like they were the only ones who should be allowed there. Absolutely. In order to make room, some people have to, to make more space. Mm-hmm. So that is always a challenge. Well, this has been a very nice conversation. It is really great to take this time to to get to know you, Ursula, and the work that you do. Um, it, it's reaffirming and exciting that we're in different places, but we're we're fighting the same fight, and we're <laughs> we're connected together. And you know, maybe we can keep pushing forward. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it was really great talking to you too. I love hearing about just how different libraries handle the same kind of struggles that that we have we you know in special collections there's we're always all going to have kind of similar issues that we're dealing with and i i love i just i genuinely love hearing about how the all the really creative and interesting ways people kind of like combat some of these problems and challenges thanks to the rare book school mellon fellowship for funding this project remember to visit us at bit dot ly slash chconvos.